For early access plus exclusive content, facilitated discussions, live one-on-one Q&As, and more, become a patron at patreon.com slash brucepointset. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, we got another interview. It's been a while, but we got a special guest in the building today. At Amber Boydston. How are you doing today? I'm so great. Thank you for having me, Bruce. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. I've been, you know, meaning not even just to interview you, but to to really just be in conversation with you. Like I'm, you know, just admirer of the work you do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're one of those people who's out there doing a lot of different things. So, like I said, I've just been meaning to be in conversation. And this weekend kind of presented a you know, opportunity just because we both have events coming up this mm-hmm. Saturday, December 18th. So I, in my case, I'm hosting a panel on Black News Future featuring Donovan Smith, Max Smith, and Jenny Moore as part of the Let the Trumpet Sound Celebrating 160 Years of Black Journalism in Oregon exhibit with uh, Daryl Grant in the Soul Restoration Project. So I won't spend too much time in this interview talking about that. I'll put a link in the description for people if they want to learn more or register. But you are also hosting a screening of Colin Kaepernick's Colin in Black and White. And it's all five, six episodes of the show. So, you know, I wanted to talk with you just about, because I'm a big fan of, I'm a big fan of community screenings in general, but Mm. this is, you know, what made you choose Colin in Black and White? Yes. Well, first I want to say your event sounds uh, both needed and really, really fantastic in terms of just the amount of education I think that people are going to receive, um, and especially in in Oregon and Portland. So I'm really excited for your events. Um, and I chose, you know, we chose Colin Black and White for a handful of reasons. Um, you know, I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge that I'm a light-skinned Black woman. I have an Irish mother and an Ethiopian father. And so living, you know, and navigating the world through a light-skinned lens in a racialized society is something that I'm always processing and, you know, working through in my own life. And so um, there was a piece of it there when thinking about what to what to screen with the community that was really appealing is having that conversation around what does it look like? What does anti-Blackness look like when we factor in the amount of melanin and we factor in colorism? And then also just, you know, in general, what, you know, Colin has stood for and the backlash that he's received for trying to really center the inequities that people of the global majority are experiencing, especially when we factor in the, you know, police industrial complex, you know, sanctioned enslavement and genocide of our people. So having those conversations with a broad community, specifically in Oregon, where we were, you know, once, you know, hoped to be a white utopia for many people, uh, considering all the different dynamics that these um, five episodes in the series could bring up was really one reason that I, well, some of the reasons that that we thought about showing this. And I, I love that framing you use as far as like the global majority. I think oftentimes, you know, especially, especially as we get older, 
you know, there's certain, I guess, divisions that I like to liken it to high school, but it's really a little deeper than that. You know, mm-hmm. like jocks, nerds, theater kids, blah, 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 whatever labels we attach to it. So when we have these opportunities to show, you know, these connections and people who are actually working towards a goal, whether it be someone, you know, with a spotlight like Colin Kaepernick or, you know, a lot of people just doing the work on the streets, I always think, you know, that frame is really important for people. But then also you talked about just the relatability of that story, especially for people in Oregon, because I know in just, you know, covering stories and doing some work around, you know, both, you know, where I grew up in Lake Oswego and then just other parts around the state, that experience, especially of being, you know, being a light-skinned Black person and kind of going through these different things of with your identity and navigating that space, that is so relevant for a lot of people here. So I think, yeah, it's especially, you know, pertinent story. And again, just Colin Kaepernick, you know, his whole one is stand. And then just, you know, seeing it through is, I think it's just something, you know, keep the word about, keep the conversation going. And it's funny, you know, actually a student I work with was asking me if I, I had watched the series yet. And I was like, I, I hadn't, but, you know, I was like, oh my goodness. So when you announced this, I was like, oh, this is a perfect opportunity, one, <laughs> to catch up on this thing I wanted to see anyway. But two, just to, I just love, again, having a community conversation element because one, you're doing the screening, but then you're also, you're offering snacks and offering a little time just to talk afterwards. And can you just talk a little bit about why that dialogue is so important? Mm-hmm. Most definitely. You know, we, as humans, it's absolutely natural to vet one another in order to stay alive. That's, that's hardwired in us on a cellular level. And, and so when we consider 600 years of sanctioned violence of people of the global majority, there's a lot of trauma inherently that just comes up around sorry, there's a little sound in the back here, Bruce, that, that comes up for all people. And so um, when, when considering holding group conversations, a huge part of what this platform allows is for people to really grow and learn from one another. And so having challenging conversations about inequities, about access, about privilege, um, when we have those conversations really in a, um, like a micro level, I think that we, we miss though. And so part of a whole across, uh, you know, the global majority and the global minority across the, you know, diaspora, of humanity, when we have these conversations in groups, it allows us to really um, learn in spaces where we build community, which can lead to safety. And I say it in that way, specifically and intentionally, because people of the global majority cannot create safe spaces for white people. Although what we can do is we can create spaces that build community that leads to safety. Because the power dynamic is so imbalanced um, that, that it's important that we factor that piece in. And so just, I think bringing people together to, to hold space for curiosity is really, really powerful and also helps us 
move through those very, very primal reactions that we have to one another um, based on the need to survive and also based on our conditioning largely around anti-Blackness. That was a mouthful, Bruce. I apologize. Oh, not at all. That was actually a perfect segue into, you know, I wanted to talk about when you talk about that power dynamic and specifically being able to navigate that power dynamic, because again, like I said, I'm an admirer of a lot of the work you do and you feel like you wear a lot of hats, both in work that people see, but then a lot of work that people don't see. And one, I'm just curious, like, as far as like, your nonprofit Spirited Justice, how, how long has it been around, just out of curiosity? Six years. Six years? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I'm curious, as far as, like, work, as far as, like, mediation, mm-hmm. facilitation, that type of stuff, like, how long have you been involved in doing that, whether it be, you know, on a level of, like, social justice activism or just as far mm-hmm. as in general? Yeah. So I'm 38, and I started working with Clackamas County Family Court Services when I was 13. I wasn't old enough to get paid, um, so I'd, I'd get a stipend <laughs> uh, and uh, continue doing work uh, throughout my teen and then into adult years, uh, both on the ground, uh, working for Multnomah and Clackamas County, and then also working in schools and, um, and then doing some work internationally as well. And then uh, through university times. And um, so it's been really a part of who I am, this work, and, and also work that my family, both sides of my family were educators in their own ways. Um, and so, you know, I was born into communities of people who are deeply dedicated to their, uh, to the wellness of the communities around them. And so it was just an extension, I think, of, of what I was born into to do this work. Um, and I continue to do the work because it does feel like a calling that's bigger than me. It definitely feels like it's work that moves through me. And I really, really love it. Like it brings me a lot of joy. And so prior to the pandemic, I would often, um, you know, for a while there, I'd, I worked uh, with Resolutions Northwest. I oversaw three programs and then provided free mediation to all the city of Portland. Um, so that could be, you know, uh, neighborhood issues, neighbors living next to each other. That could be businesses next to each other. That could be, you know, at a much higher level when we're looking at our, you know, people who work um, in our government. Um, and then transition from there because I was always working in schools as well to just having my own business and taking contracts and working in schools as a restorative justice and transformative justice coordinator. So really looking at the systems that were in place, changing them from a punitive system to restorative system. And prior to the pandemic, because school transitioned for a while there, I've been doing a lot of trainings on abolition equity, justice, anti-racism practices, um, and then some around the history of Oregon. Yeah, again, you know, just wearing a lot of hats, doing a lot of work, <laughs> but, you know, and I, honestly, you know, I'm looking around, I was wondering between, again, the stuff that people see, and then, you know, just hearing through the grapevine, some of the, you know, stuff you're doing behind the scenes or especially like navigating, you know, internal stuff in a lot of these movements. Mm. And I, I can't help but wonder, it's like, okay, when does Amber have time to like take care of herself? Like what is, mm. you know, you know <laughs> what, what is Amber doing to sustain? But uh, yeah. yeah, I I mean, 
such as such as the life of a black woman, right? Um, I, but I do, I really, really acknowledge uh, the need to pause and, and you know, have a, moments of undistracted attention to the present. Um, when I do that, when I practice meditation or conscious breathing, even for just a few minutes at a time, I try to do it every single day for at least 20 minutes, but sometimes life is really real and I have 60 seconds um, to be fully conscious, but that allows me to recalibrate, to center, to align, and then to really show up as my best self in, in other moments. Yeah, and also to that end, you know, one thing I like about your approaches is that you don't, you know, it's a cliche to say you don't mince words, but, you know, you are very direct in your messaging. And oftentimes, especially in like this nonprofit industrial complex in a space like Oregon, there's a lot of, this is a lot of pressure. Like I, I know I don't run a nonprofit, but I deal with a lot of people, especially like if I'm getting something through like crowdsourcing or getting any support through crowdsourcing where, I mean, just put it frankly, like it feels like a lot of these white people feel like they've bought you even mm -hmm. in these like mm -hmm. small increments of money or even yeah. some, in some cases, not even just by showing up, but then especially like if money becomes involved. So I'm curious as far as like how you, one, just navigate and deal with that because I, I imagine and with a lot of the work you do, especially, you know, just securing funding that that is ever present, but also being able to, again, stay, you know, not just resolute, but just like say what you need to say mm -hmm. and, you know, call things out by name. Yeah. Not letting that again, just like dilute your work or, you know, basically pressure you into not even silence, but just again, you know, bending to the comfort of these people. Mm, mm. Yes, that's, that's a whole word there, Bruce. <laughs> I have so often willingly, subconsciously, and, and uh, with much disdain played the house Negro position. And when I say that, I mean, you know, the light-skinned person that can both be in the big house, but also is like, uh, still considered less than, and it feels very prevalent in this part of the world in terms of the Pacific Northwest and specifically Oregon. Um, so I'm very much aware of how I show up in terms of what people are perceiving based on their own conditioning, and then how I have been conditioned to tap dance. And so part of what I've grown into feeling more comfortable with is really being transparent around that. So I, I will definitely name that to white people. Like I, I understand that you might want to treat me like a house Negro. And here's the ways in which that looks tangibly in you know, 2021. Um, but here's the ways in which I want to partner on a humanitarian level. I also have gotten to places where I felt like I wanted to stop the work that I do because it feels at times so insurmountable. And then I'm reminded of the immense access that I have as a light-skinned Black woman and that I get to say things uh, so explicitly that my more richly melanated and deeply melanated comrades would never have freedom to say that I, that 
I am very much in a position similar to white people in that I ask white people to use their privilege every day. So I don't think it's a privilege to be considered a house Negro, but I think it is an access point. And I don't, I, I don't think of myself every day as a house Negro, but I think of the ways in which that I am positioned in this world and the ways in which white people uh, um, perform in, in terms of transactions. And it is very much linked to a history of enslavement of black people. And so just acknowledging that history, acknowledging the ways in which I get to stand strong for the continued growth and liberation and healing and wholeness of black people, which is the liberation of all people, um, is, is really what sort of is, is like that consistent track that's playing through my mind. <laughs> I really appreciate that response, just when you're talking about growing into kind of that space or growing into that, you know, comfort, because, you know, a lot of, especially like younger people, you know, they look out, they see, see someone like you and, they might assume like it's just always been that way. Like there wasn't a process to get there. It becomes, you know, this way of, uh, I guess like just turning people, especially especially black women on the front lines into like these superheroes, but not in like a flattering way and just a dehumanized way, you know? So, mm. you know, that relatability is important. And uh, yeah, like I said, it's, um, it's just this process of navigating white supremacy and kind of like mm. really just laying out the nuances. And, you know, some people I found that, you know, yeah, there's people who are going to, you know, recoil and whatever, but honestly, there's also a lot of people who in a weird way do want to just be told about themselves. Even if, <laughs> even if their engagement beyond that isn't particularly uh, meaningful, but like they almost like come for the show, but that's a whole whole other discussion <laughs> um yes. so uh yeah anyways as people can see you're you're in the car it's a busy day so I don't want to take too much <laughs> of your time but uh for people who are interested in Colin and Black and White screening how can they uh where is it going to be at what time mm-hmm. do they need to mm-hmm. sign up and get tickets can you give them all that information most definitely. So uh, if you go to Spirited Justice on IG and my link tree, uh, there will be tickets available. Uh, getting tickets just allows us to make sure that we have more than enough food available. If, if you don't have tickets, please feel free to show up. It'll be Saturday the 18th. Start time will be 7 p.m. We will have people at all three entrances of the Merchant Hotel, which is in Old Town, Portland. And those uh, three entrances to the hotel um, are uh, um, two stairs and one elevator entrance. The elevator entrance is 122nd Northwest 2nd Avenue. And again, if you go to my IG, all the information will be there. Um, And uh, I hope to see you all. We're going to have doors open at 630. We'll start about 720 just to allow some time for people to come in and out. There will be food and drinks. We'll air all five episodes. They're about 28 minutes to 30 minutes each. So about roughly two and a half hours total. And then we'll have a circle debrief conversation following that people can stay for or leave whatever their comfort level is.
and I am a trained facilitator. So as, um, as emotions rise, I will be there to hold the space and support community. Awesome. Awesome. And I'll also be putting a link in the description for people when they watch this video later. So yeah, Amber, thank you again for taking the time and, you know, keep up the great work. Bruce, thank you so much. And I really look forward to having another talk with you where I'm sitting in my office. I'm not on the go. And I, I thank you for your grace. Of course, of course. Take care. Thank you for watching. Please like and share and subscribe so you can stay up to date on all the latest videos. Thank you.